Hello, this is Sean Leary, and this is QC Uncut, the number one rated podcast in the Quad Cities, offering you uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers, hosted by me, your charming and delightful host, Sean Leary. And today, we have a very special guest. It's Mike Halpin, who is the state representative for District 72, and um, I always appreciate it when politicians come on the show because they realize the nature of the show is that it is completely unedited, uncensored, uncut in any way, shape, or form. And we hit record and we have a conversation and there it is. It is all completely in context. And so I always like it when politicians come on because all too often in our world, as we were talking about before I started recording, everything is uh, chopped down to a soundbite or it's down to a little quote or two that are, that's put in the newspaper. And it's always nice to actually have a substantive conversation and a long-form conversation with someone because to me that's the purest form of journalism where you are reporting on something you're having a conversation with someone you're allowing people to hear the entire conversation on all the topics on all the subjects covered and then allowing them to take that information and make up their own mind based upon the full picture so i want to thank mike for coming to join me today on the show thanks for having me sean i appreciate it and and uh, I can tell you rehearsed your opening a little bit, which is great. <laughs> always good to hear you. Yeah. That always, yeah, that always kind of like comes up because we'll talk about things like, okay, what do we want to hit on and stuff like that prior to the show. And then, um, and then it comes to be like, oh, how am I going to introduce the show? Because normally it's completely flying by the seat of my pants, kind of like now. But um, there are a lot of things to talk about. I mean, obviously, we... Um, you know, congratulations on the re-election, by the way. Um, you and Neil uh, are both going to continue representing um, our district here in the Quad Cities. And um, it's interesting to me. Let's start with that a little bit. Um, you and Neil worked pr- pretty well together. And you were a Democrat. Neil Anderson is a Republican. And you have uh, been able to, you know, craft some bipartisan legislation that has helped the Quad Cities. What's that been like, given the fact that we are, the way the country is right now, it's very divided along partisan lines where there are some hardline people who are one way hardline people who are another. Um, very, it seems like the number of moderates and the number of people that could swing either way is diminishing consistently. Um, what's it like for you to be able to, um, to work across the aisle and how is that like in the Illinois State Assembly? Is it, is it a fairly... I don't want to say easy, but is it a much uh, more amicable process than, say, we're seeing across the country as a a whole? I would say that it's actually a lot easier than most people would think. And as you mentioned, we're kind of in a polarized society. And part of that is because of the candidates ourselves. You know, we, during campaign season, we try to emphasize the differences and try to show how we're going to be a better uh, representative than the other side. Uh, and part of it's the media that obviously likes you know more clicks because of more controversy, more more contradiction. Uh, but in reality, 90% of what we do down in Springfield is actually a cooperative uh, type of process. And for example, Neil and I don't see eye to eye on some of the some of the core issues that we have to face down there. But I, I think we're extremely good at working together to try to get uh, some common sense things done for this district. Uh, we work very closely with uh, businesses, non 
nonprofits and uh, individuals on constituent issues. Uh, Actually, one of the first things he and I did was to pass a bill uh, that helped the Robert Young Center to allow them mm -hmm. to take involuntary commitments from, from the state of Iowa. Right. Uh, in some cases, folks in Iowa, if they were committed, had to go you know, halfway across the state of Iowa, away from friends and family. And what that bill allowed is, even just if, if it's for a handful of people, allowed them to be a little closer and... Um, um, you know, be with their support network, hopefully get them better uh, sooner without having to be separated from them. Um, so things like that, uh, it's a lot of what we do in Springfield. And it's really only those high-profile issues where that polarization really comes in. But he, he's good to work with. His office is great to work with. Um, and we try to get things done for, for this area. Now, one of the things that you guys do disagree on, and I know that that's this is something that's along party lines, is the gun issue. Um, I know Neil is a very staunch proponent of Second Amendment rights. Um, I tend to be... I, I, and I actually had a discussion with Republicans about that. I think I had a discussion with Neil about this at one point. Um, where I can, I can see the point. If you and I had a machine gun on the table right here, as we're here in lovely Cool Beans here in Rock Island, Illinois, um, neither of us is going to think for a second about picking that machine gun up and just shooting willy-nilly. We're just not because we're reasonable people and we're men of conscience. We're people of conscience, you know. But if the, either of us had mental illness or if either of us had deficiencies in our moral code or character, then we might consider that and depending on how far along the spectrum we are in terms of having mental health issues, one of us might do that. So I can see the argument that it isn't the guns that kill people, it's the people that kill people. Now, here's the argument on both sides obviously, and I'd like you to address both of these. One is I can totally see hunting, and I think if you, if you poll people, I would say probably 80%, 90% of people would agree with this. Handguns and hunting rifles, okay. No problem with people hunting, long-standing tradition, people have done it a long time in this country. A, a handgun, a simple handgun to protect yourself and to protect your home, that also is very reasonable. Anything beyond that seems to be extravagant and extreme and seems more for hobbyists. And you have to weigh the benefits of somebody being able to pursue their hobby versus the public good and the public the ability for harm. And when I've gotten in arguments about this with Republicans, they've gone, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, yeah, but lawn darts. Two words, lawn darts. Lawn darts are outlawed. You know, and again, it's a hobbyist's preference versus public safety. But on the other hand, you look at the Republican side of things in terms of the mental health issue. How much is really being done in regard to the mental health issue and in upping the amount of money to address the mental health issue as well as the diagnosis and the treatment of these mental health issues and the um, putting the system in place so that people with mental health issues or who have had mental health issues 
or who have been convicted felons before cannot get a gun again or cannot get a gun, period. You know, that, that would seem to be a common sense thing to do. Where do you fall on the spectrum of that hot button topic? I know you're like looking at me like, thanks a lot for giving me this incredibly incendiary issue to start off, Sean. But let's start off with this. Tell me what do you think on the, what do you think on both of those and where you fall on the spectrum of that. Well, I'm glad we're easing into it. Um, <laughs> so actually, you know, as far as voting records go, uh, Neil and I aren't, aren't too far apart. Um, I, I supported uh, a ban on bump stocks and trigger cranks, you know, th- that right. really increased the lethality of, of some of these weapons. And I also supported uh, extending the waiting period for um, uh, for long guns to match that of, of handguns. It was a three-day. And I thought those were both common sense um, solutions. Uh, however, I have voted uh, uh, against some other legislation that's been uh, proposed just because I think when in talking to people here in this district, uh, they want to strike a right balance between you know, a constitutional right. And you mentioned lawn darts, and that's always a good uh, example, but... um you know, you know, backyard, ho- you know, backyard hobbies aren't protected by the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has indicated that, um, you know, there are cer- obviously are certain rights, and that the Second Amendment means something. And I, and I, but, 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 Mike, lawn darts fall into the First Amendment under pursuit of happiness. If I was a lawyer, I would argue that. So, <laughs> uh, so the, the 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 First Amendment technically does not guarantee pursuit of happiness. Uh, you'd have to consider it either speech, exercise of religion, religion, or freedom to assemble. Uh, you might have a, a freedom point. to assemble yeah. in the backyard, Mike. You might have a point on the, the assembly, but that uh-huh. we'll leave that for the, the, <laughs> the scholarly folks in D.C. Yeah. Um, but we need to, I, I think we need to address the mental health issue uh, more than anything else, because it seems um, that's where we're falling behind. Illinois does not have very good uh, Medicaid reimbursement rates for mental health. There's a, a shortage of suppliers, or sorry, providers of mental health. There's, you know, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on the front side that can do a lot to go uh, towards preventing uh, all sorts of domestic violence, uh, other violence issues, homelessness, uh, drug addiction. Right. You know, so w- there's a lot more work we can do on that front end to try to address some of these problems. Well, that's and that leads into really what I think, honestly, it's one of the biggest issues in society today is mental health. Whether it's the gun issue, where, as we mentioned, nobody of right mind and sane composure is going to pick up a gun and shoot other people. So it is a mental health issue in a lot of ways. Um, You could say the same thing about the issue that, another issue that we're going to talk about, which is very much at the forefront of society, is why is it a mental health issue if somebody is hoarding newspapers or hoarding cats, but it's not a mental health issue if you're a multi-billionaire and you're hoarding money and resources that you will know in no way, shape, or form ever spend by any means, any stretch of the imagination. If you went out every day and bought Lamborghinis every day, you still would not spend. People don't understand how much a billion dollars is. Nobody needs a billion dollars. They just don't. But yet that's not seen as a mental health issue. That's not seen as hoarding. Um, and the, the complete lack of, um, of compassion on the part of some people who are in that position in regard to those that don't have as much. Um, and then, you know, you have the argument of some people, of, well, they work really hard for it. Well, not really. I mean, the people, you know, if you want to go by work ethic, the women who are working in sweatshops for 14 hours a day, I'd say that they probably deserve to be billionaires if you're going by work ethic equals compensation. So 
mental health does seem to be right at the top of the issues that society needs to address. And we're talking about the divisiveness of society and the fact that people can't seem to see nuances and they tend to hew to one side or the other, which is also, if you study psychology, a symptom of problematic mental health, is when you cannot see the logic of something or you dehumanize someone and you hew to a simple dogma as opposed to seeing the nuances of it or the humanity in other people. How is Illinois, how have you, um, helped to advance the mental health issue? How prominent is that of an issue for people to address? And, or is it something that I think people just don't get because it's a little bit more nebulous? It's not as you know, direct as a lot of other issues. Yeah, we've, we've struggled with it as a legislature because right now what's most important is the actual resources. Uh, we have uh, knowledge to be able to treat, uh, you know, some of these illnesses, but we haven't been able, because of our budget issues, to put the money into those programs or to incentivize providers to take on patients. Um, I mean, the, the folks with the most, most serious problems are, uh, have the fewest resources, mm -hmm. and getting to them requires a lot of state support, and we simply just haven't had uh, the resources on the state level to put towards it. And I guess I, I'd push back a little bit on, on uh, calling the wealthy, or having, uh, indicating the wealthy might have a uh, mental health issue by, by hoarding resources. I would I say the super wealthy, to, to yeah. differentiate. I'm not talking about someone who's got a million dollars. There's a million dollars when you think about it you actually do the calculations both of us have probably made close to a million dollars in our entire lives given the fact that you know we probably both started working when we were in our mid-teens maybe and we're I don't know a few decades past our mid-teens <laughs> so if you add up the money if even if you make like 40 or 50 thousand dollars a year um, you can make a million dollars over the course of a lifetime or over the course of three decades or so whereas a billion dollars is just it's just insane when you look at like how much it is compared to a million yeah it is a it's it's an unimaginable number in a lot of ways but I do think it is part of our human nature to to gather resources and to try to keep them I think it's our our self-interested, you know, motivation to try to to harness that, and that's that's the way it's been for you know since the beginning of, of time in a lot of ways, and that's why we need uh, a government that's able to uh, to stop the abuses of that kind of resource gain. Uh, if it weren't for uh, government, our public lands would be completely stripped. Uh, we and and those are other resources that we'd um, not have available to us, and in some cases that is actually happening. Our government isn't doing Doing enough uh, to prevent that harm to the environment. I think wealth is the is the same way. We've got two extremes in this country, and it's not a good place for us to be. And it's tough for uh, everyday people to look and see a handful of individuals uh, um, having so many resources and them having to struggle uh, every day just to you know feed themselves or their kids. So it is a it's a separate problem. I I wouldn't necessarily address that end of it as a mental health issue. I think that's a uh, you know a government uh, it's a uh, it's a public good it's a taxation question excellent that you brought that up because that leads us to a next another topic um, the big taxation question uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently brought up and of course 
people on the far right immediately attacked it and immediately attacked her because that's you know the knee-jerk reaction brought up the prospect of a marginal tax rate which the marginal tax rate is she was saying 70 percent on everything earned over 10 million dollars now to explain this to people who instantly see red in terms of this that means that if you make if i'm making 10 million dollars a year i do not get taxed on that 70 percent but if i make 10 million and one dollars then that one dollar will be taxed at 70%. Then everything I make over that $1, say I make $11 million a year. Man, from my mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Give me a raise here, God. <laughs> $11 million a year. My first $10 million doesn't get taxed at 70%. You get taxed at the regular rate. But that $1 million over the $10 million is taxed at 70%. I'm not explaining, you already know this. I'm explaining this to people listening who maybe don't aren't aware of that. How would that be a bad thing? Um, when you look at it, that was a Republican principle. Eisenhower had that in place in the 1950s. Uh, the, the, the marginal tax rate went up to 91% under Eisenhower, and the cap for Eisenhower, when you adjust it to today's dollars, was $2.7 million. So it was basically everything that someone made over $2.7 million a year. And I'm talking $2.7 million in 50s dollars. So today it would be $2.7 million. Was, char was taxed at 91%. Now people might go, oh, that's not... You know, that's not fair, blah, 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 blah. And the people that argue that, most 99.9% .9 of them will never make, you know, close to a million dollars in, you know, in a, in a year. So I don't understand why they're arguing against it. But nevertheless, um, it's, it's in a way, it's like forced trickle down in some ways. Because instead of the nebulous theory of trickle-down being if we give the rich tax cuts, they'll spend it, which they never do, which we've seen over the last 40 years. They just hoard it and take it overseas. Um, if you have a marginal tax rate, it forces people to invest that extra money because then they can get tax breaks and they can write things off on their taxes, such as giving their employees raises, spending more money on capital you know, improvements, things of that nature. So to me, it seems like a very logical thing. Mike, what's your opinion on it? Do you think that there should be a, um, a marginal tax rate? Where, If so, how much do you think it should be? Where do you think the cutoff should be? And how would that impact the state of Illinois? So on the on the tax system in general, I think you know the federal system of a graduated tax with marginal tax rates is the right way to go. As you know, here in Illinois, we've got a, a flat tax currently at 4.95 percent. Uh, although we are uh, hopefully going to be changing that uh, over the next couple of years, I think Illinoisans have have in concept agreed with that idea. There was a ballot issue back in 2014 that asked whether or not uh, the the public supports. A, a surcharge on incomes over a million dollars, which is essentially a marginal tax rate uh, on income above the one million. So like you were saying, on that one million and first dollar, that's when the the higher rate kicked in. And under that uh, proposal, I, don't, I can't re recall if there was a specific percentage assigned to it, but it might have been 2% or something. So in a sense, that was a way to try to gauge support for a graduated income tax. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the way that we need to go in Illinois. 
now it doesn't make sense in Illinois to have top rates anywhere close to the the seventy percent that um, you know, they're talking about on the federal level. And I'll leave it to the federal's folks. We got enough problems in Illinois for me to start tinkering with their tax rates. But I think Illinois needs to go in that direction, and it's a conversation we're going to be having in uh, in Springfield uh, over the next, I would say, over the next six months. Uh, this session. Yeah, I just noticed that uh, it was in the news that uh, Governor, new Governor Pritzker, uh, was mentioning that, and he's, you know, not a, a poor man. He's a, a multimillionaire, so it's going to impact him too. Um, what are some of the dis- discussions that have been talked about in terms of changing that flat tax rate, and what percentages are you looking at? Um, how do you think the system would go, and how do you think that would stimulate the economy? Uh, the we haven't really discussed the the particular rates in part because it, it seems uh, it seems strange to uh, to do that when it wouldn't even be, wouldn't really be put in place for several years. Uh, it's going to take time for us to either pass the constitutional amendment and then put it to the voters for a, a referendum. Um, so I think those discussions will certainly happen once we know that we're on that path. Um, but I think it should be, you know, in line with what some of our uh, surrounding states do. I know Iowa's had a graduated income tax uh, for for a long time, um, and we just have to do it in a in a smart way that makes sure that folks making, you know, what was traditionally considered a middle class or upper middle class income um, see some relief, while the folks at the very top are paying a fairer share. Um. Let's go into another topic that has come up recently in terms of um, the new governor. Um, well, let's just talk in general. How do you feel about the new governor? How do you feel about Governor Pritzker coming in? I know that there was a lot of um, yeah, discontent. There was a lot of you know conflict uh, when Governor Rauner was in. Um, what was that like going through things with um, Rauner as the governor? And how has it been so far with J.B. Pritzker? Uh, well, I, I can tell you, I came into government back in uh, spring of 2017 at a low point. We hadn't had a budget for, uh, I think, almost two and a half years. And the tension down there, both between the parties and between the legislature and the governor, uh, was was pretty intense. Uh, I can say that our new governor takes a different approach to dealing with people. Uh, I really never heard from the governor or his people in my two years down there. They didn't really make an effort to reach out to members to try to find common ground or, or find uh, compromise. And I think at least, even if you don't agree with uh, JB, I think he's willing to have the conversations with you and try to work it out, try to find some kind of consensus. Uh, it's not always going to happen. We're, there are always going to be issues where... You know, we just can't come to an agreement. But the uh, the mood is certainly better. The, there's a little more optimism optimism that we're going to find a solution. And so I, I am myself very optimistic that we'll get to a good place, at least to a better place. One of the things that um, there's a perception of is that it's basically Chicago versus the rest of Illinois in a lot of ways. And that's something that we saw play out in the election where, um, you know, I, everybody is either your um, – Governor Madigan's toady or whatever, and I mean, or not Governor Madigan, uh, <laughs> Speaker Madigan. You're, you know, you're if you're if you're a Democrat, you're being tarred with the you know, Speaker Madigan's pocket. Mike, have you ever been in Speaker Madigan's pocket? Is it roomy? Is it you know? Is it comfortable? I, I, I've never been in anybody's uh, pocket. Uh, I would say that. 
you know, and this, you know, both, you know, both sides do it, you know, right, in yeah. during it's campaign it's season, everybody, everybody's associated with Ron or everyone's associated with Trump. Whoever the biggest boogeyman on the other side is, is where you get. I will say there's, there's some truth to the idea that, that we're a state divided, not just on party lines, but on geographic lines. But that's not something that's new uh, to Illinois. It's been like that long before I even came to the state where the, the Chicago, city of Chicago and Cook County versus the suburbs versus uh, downstate Illinois. And there are issues where you've got uh, suburbs and Chicago on board and it's downstate on the other side of it. You've got areas a lot. Um, there's a lot of areas where it comes to poverty uh, and school uh, quality that downstate in the city of Chicago have so much more in common than most people realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's an issue where I think we can build consensus to say, you know, what's good for Chicago can be good for, for downstate Illinois. Uh, but that's, a, again, we're trying to build coalitions to do what's best for, for the entire state. It is sometimes difficult uh, as a downstater to push back against uh, some of the Chicago initiatives. But at least as a Democrat, uh, I'm very close with some of the folks in Chicago and the legislators. And, you know, they, they're willing to talk to me to find out how they can be helpful to me in downstate Illinois. And I'm not saying it should be like this, but they might be a lot more willing to listen when it's coming from a Democrat than coming from a Republican that they might not necessarily trust on a lot of issues. And so I think it's important that we have, uh, frankly, Republicans and Democrats from downstate and that we actually have some uh, uh, Republicans as voices for people in the city of Chicago. And I think there is one there is one Republican from the city of Chicago, and it's good to have that conversation so that he can go to some of his downstate friends in the Republican caucus and say, you know, this is important to the city of Chicago, but it's not an us versus them issue. Uh, we need more of that. And I'm not sure if you uh, are familiar with it, but there used to be a system in Illinois before we reduced the membership in the General Assembly where the, the way the election worked is generally ended up with two members of a majority party in the district, and then you had a third member that was traditionally the opposite party. So in every district in Chicago, you generally have two Democrats and one Republican. And in a lot of the downstate districts, you'd have two Republicans and a Democrat. But at least there'd be members of each party in that caucus to kind of put some influence uh, to the other folks in the, in the region. So we need to build more bridges, I guess is what I'm saying, instead of uh, burning them down. How does that impact the Quad Cities? Because um, we're kind of in the middle, really. Um, we're not Chicago, obviously, but we're also not rural downstate either. Um, this large metropolitan area, and so we have some of the same issues as other metropolitan areas as as a Chicago, only you know writ smaller. Um, but we're also surrounded by and impacted by an agrarian economy that in which we connect with. A lot of the more agrarian areas downstate. Being a representative and having to kind of um, see both sides, what's that like for you and how do you feel you're able to translate that to the uh, members who are you know much more on the Chicago side of things? Yeah, Rock Island County and, and my district in particular, which is only about a, three quarters of the county, is a microcosm of, of the state of Illinois. We have a you know dense urban uh, precincts, but then we we also have I have several rural townships that I'm you know calling into and meeting 
people from that have slightly different issues. And the best thing you can do is just to make sure to keep having conversations, you know, like, like this conversation here, but door to door or over the phone so that you know what the constituents think and you can kind of balance those interests. It's, I can tell you it's impossible to make everybody happy. You know, we're too, we're too divided. But what you can uh, aspire to and what, you, what every elected official should aspire to is to making sure that you're doing the very best you can and balancing those interests and, and at least letting people know that they've been heard and that their concerns aren't, you know, just dismissed out of hand. Uh, the, the easier it is to... Uh, explain your thought process and then explain where you came down on the issue is I think is important we need to do more of well that brings up that brings up another topic which I think is unfortunately seen as too prominent in today's society and that is making people happy it's like you have kids yes. <laughs> I have a son you don't make them happy all the time because you have to be a parent you have to be the responsible one because you're an adult. You know more than they do. And it's the same thing. You know more than I do. And that doesn't mean that I'm not an intelligent person. It just means you have a, a, a line of expertise, having been in government and having seen this long, much you know, longer than I have. And you have this experience and you know how things work. You know the internecine you know, details of the relationships within the legislature and things of that nature. And so we elect you. We elect people to go and represent us and then ostensibly trust them to do so in a responsible, logical, and intelligent way. And so you should know more than I or know more than any of the other constituents in regard to how to get things done and be an expert, so to speak, on things of this nature. And so in a lot of ways, you have to do what's best and what you can you see you can do regardless of whether or not it quote-unquote makes people happy because sometimes the things that make people happy in the short term are not what is best for them or our area in the big picture. What is it like to have to balance those two things? What is it like to make a decision that you are thinking, man, people, aren't, people might not like this in the short term, or this is going to get me some heat right now, but it's the best thing to do because I've got to do it. Respons Responsibility-wise, in the big picture, this is what has got to be done, whether it's a budgetary issue or it's any other decision that's on your plate legislatively. What's that like for you to be able to do that? And then what's it like to face people who may disagree with you, but you realize that they're disagreeing with you out of a position where they don't see the whole picture? It's, well, it's certainly not, uh, it's certainly not an, an intelligence issue. Mainly what it is, is when I, when I talk to someone, they may not have the, the broad experience or interactions with people that disagree with them on an issue, whereas I, uh, have, I think I have a responsibility to make sure to seek out differing opinions on the issues that are facing us. And so as a legislator, you're hopefully in a position where you've been able to hear the best arguments from folks that are on Joe's side, uh, but also heard the, the best arguments from people that are on Mary's side of the issue. And as we go down to Springfield and try to resolve uh, those issues, you want to, like I said, balance that. And a lot of times what, what people think makes them happy is just that uh, they're happy when you agree with them. <laughs> so it may not even be, it may not even be the, 
the result, but they're just happy to know that you're on their side. But you, but you can't govern that way. Right. I mean, people cannot govern by poll. People cannot govern by what is going to make people happy and to make them agree with them because sometimes people don't know what they just don't know what's best. And you're right, it's not an intelligence issue. I I got into Stanford grad school, but if my car broke down, I wouldn't know how to fix it. <laughs> so does that mean that I'm not intelligent? No, it just means that my area of expertise and my intelligence is located in a certain parameter of knowledge base. And it's the same with most people. People aren't knowledgeable in everything. There's nobody that's like House who walks in and is like a genius in everything um, other than on a television show. And so we kind of rely on our representatives and the people that are going down there to, to have that expertise to look out for what's going to be best in the big picture. And in, for people to expect, oh, you're going to make me happy all the time, I don't think it's realistic. I think what you what you have a responsibility to do is to do what's best for the district and then also communicate that to people and be transparent in communicating your reasons for doing it and why. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a, and a great uh, example of this was in 2017 when we were voting on the budget. I had spent a lot of time doing town halls, knocking on doors, talking to people one-on-one, and, and I got a lot of conflicting information. So the same people uh, would tell me, you know, don't raise my taxes, uh, but they'd also say, go do your job and pass a budget. And when we looked at the numbers from the experts, because even us legislators are not uh, experts in everything, um, when we look at the numbers, tried to balance uh, future you know, future revenues and, and future spending, um, we had to come up to a hard decision to go back to the tax rate that was in effect in 2014 and which had been um, sunsetted or expired uh, during Governor Rauner's term. And as a, as a short-term matter, you know, people were very unhappy. But the more that you explain the results or, or the reasoning behind it, and the more that you point out that if we didn't pass a budget then, you, all you're doing is essentially raising taxes on younger generations down the road, um, when you try to explain that to people, they tend to understand. Um, I think the the people are a lot smarter than some people give them credit for. Uh, you know, they're willing to listen, they're willing to share ideas, and they're willing to um, at least show respect for a decision, even if they don't agree with it. And that's an excellent point because that is one thing that I remember trying to explain. I um, when I was writing for the the Times a few years back, uh, Leslie Munger came to town who was the you know um governor rounder's right hand person and she was trying to explain you know oh this is why we're doing this and blah 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 and i actually looked at it and i looked at what they were trying to do and i'm like well if you didn't cut these taxes you'd be fine because the exact it was pretty much the exact amount oh we're in the hole for this amount i'm like well yeah because you cut this you cut this tax and if you hadn't cut this tax you'd have that exact same amount coming in and the budget would be balanced there wouldn't be these issues oh no 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 well you can't threaten people you can't rig something to make it look bad and then say that we have a crisis because you didn't have a crisis rounder came in and he cut a tax that was there before and then he said oh well we're missing out on all this money well no joke you'd freaking cut this tax that was bringing in that money all you gotta do is restore that tax and that's i remember asking her that it was one of the first things i said why don't you just restore this tax it would bring in the exact same amount of money that you're missing and everything would go back to the way it was and, yeah, and but to me that didn't make any sense yeah and to me 
that's not that's not to say that uh, had the tax income tax suns- not sunsetted in 2014 that we would have been okay. We, Illinois still has some significant budget uh, challenges, but it would have been a lot easier to keep up with you know what with what we need to spend in order to provide services that the citizens want and deserve. And the the fact that we didn't have a budget actually cost us millions and hundreds of millions of dollars extra in interest and fees when we couldn't pay our bills and Governor Honor really sent us in a backwards direction it made it a much bigger hole for us to try to dig out of what in your mind and on paper what are those issues that are the biggest budget issues facing Illinois and how do they how do you address them how is uh, Governor Pritzker planning on addressing them moving forward Um, how do you change those so that they don't become detrimental in the future Uh, the biggest issue by far is the unfunded pension debt here in the state of Illinois as you probably know, for over the past 30 years, um, the, the, one of the biggest culprits is the state not paying into the system when it's supposed to. And as any you know, financial advisor will tell you, when you put in a dollar 30 years in the past, uh, if you fail to put in that dollar, it's going to cost you at least three or four or more to make up for it now. And the reality is the legislature, before I even got elected, passed reforms in 2011 for new employees coming into the system that dramatically reduces the cost of pensions going forward. The problem is that we still have, I think today, $130 billion in, in debt from uh, funds that were promised and should have been put in years ago. So we have a total, uh, it's called the normal cost of the pension, is the cost of pensions going forward. That's really only $2 billion a year, which is completely manageable. The problem is that we have $6.5 billion in last year's budget that goes to that unfunded um, pension debt. And so you're talking $8.5 billion to pensions out of a budget, a general revenue budget of $36 billion. And under Governor Edgar's plan from back in 1995, that number only gets bigger and bigger and a larger percentage of general revenue through the year 2045. As I said before, we've, we've taken the tough step, which is cutting benefits that's a politically tough step uh, especially since a lot of our state you know they work very hard to uh, in the jobs they do and some of them you know give up private sector work in order to get job security and a, and a comfortable retirement but we've done the difficult part of, of bending that cost curve down now it's just how do we pay off this debt that we've incurred in the past uh, it's not an easy issue. A couple of ideas are out there. One's to re-amateurize it, extend the ramp further along, uh, lowering our immediate payments. But again, payments will still increase. I'm not a huge fan of that because I think it is kicking the can down the road. Uh, a much better option financially is to pay ahead the debt. So pay you know a billion dollars extra, two billion more now. Uh, than what the ramp says we have to pay so that we can save interest costs and that money you know interest in depositing that money into the pension system starts to work with us instead of working against us Uh, it's a viable solution i think it's one that people are talking about in springfield the downside is that when you add you got to find that extra two billion dollars and that comes from 
other services that we need. It comes from, you know, road budgets or mental health services. It comes from someplace, higher education. And that's where we find ourselves in a bind. Uh, and that's, that's where it's going to be a difficult choice if we want to go that route. How much um, pension abuse is there? That's something that I've read about is people who you can get a That's one thing is you, you say like extending it because I know that, you know, I've read that there are some people that you can get a pension at 50 mm-hmm. and then you get a pension at 65. And what they'll do is they'll take retirement at 50 from one state job. Then they'll go and take another state job. And then they'll take, they'll retire again at 60, 65. And suddenly they're getting two pensions from two different jobs. How can that be, how can it be fair? I mean, that that seems a little, again, it's like rigging the system to, and that that has to be a financial drain in terms of that. I mean, can, can, can those be combined or something? If someone takes another state job, can you, okay, boom, you it, that clicks back in and it's all in one account because it's the same person or something of that nature so that it isn't taxing, you know, pun intended, the system as, as much. I, I think those instances are probably in the vast minority of, of cases. I, I know it does happen. Um, over the, the years, there's been a lot of reciprocal agreements between various pension funds so that if you get time in one and then switch over to a different profession, you get credit for your time in the previous one. Uh, that's something I think is normal. I don't know that that's um, uh, abusive, as you say. I think what we should get away from, though, is we want to make sure that we don't create a bad system just because there are some exceptions or people that you know, in one manner or another, able to take advantage of it. I think we do need to provide a decent pension for, for state employees. They, they do hard work, and again, they sometimes sacrifice on the front-end wages side, knowing that they're going to have that job security and that when they retire, they're going to be able to, to live comfortably without having to find, you know, another job at that point. So I think that's probably less of an issue in the grand scheme of things. When you're talking about that $130 billion of unfunded debt, it's really, that's the big problem. It's not the amount of benefits that we're putting out, although we did address that problem in the reforms in 2011. We did cut benefits. Um, Let's talk about some of the ways in which um, Governor Pritzker has come in and immediately said, okay, we're going to make some big changes. And don't worry, folks, we're going to talk about the $15, $15 an hour uh, minimum wage thing here very shortly. Um, but uh, immediately one of them, legalizing marijuana. Um, that's something I've talked to friends of mine who are cops. They seem to be very much against that for various reasons. Um, and I can see their point. Um, having been someone who I st- I've traveled out to Colorado, I've traveled out to Nevada, I've traveled out to California. Um, I don't, but then again, I'm not out there. I'm just visiting. I don't see it being a major issue or a major problem or anything like that. Um, and having read about it and done research on it, it seems like, you know, they're bringing in a considerable, especially in Colorado, just an insane amount of revenue. And then that revenue is also being taken away from the fact that law enforcement doesn't have to pursue a lot of these, these crimes because they're no longer crimes anymore. Do you see that, considering that Governor Pritzker has come in and said, boom, we're going to legalize it, this is something that's going to happen. How do you see that playing out in Illinois? 
and um, how do you see that playing out not only from the plus side of you know monetary uh, income but also in terms of law enforcement and then the big picture of things do you think it's going to create uh, many difficulties or difficult situations where you know the legalization of it is going to um, is going to have uh, certain downsides as well my, my philosophy on this is I, I think that we're going to have a bill and I, in general I definitely support the the theory I'll have to look at what the specific details are in the bill when it comes uh, I think there are a variety of arguments against it uh, two of which I think are actually serious arguments that we have to consider and the first is that it's still is going to be and should be illegal to dr drive while impaired. On, on well, yeah, of course, and that's the thing is what, and that's what I always say is it's got to be like alcohol, you know, where you, you can't drive while impaired. You get, you've got to be 21 to buy it. You know, you can't have like 12 year olds going to buy it or anything like that. And really, in a lot of places where you go, there are designated areas in which you can smoke. You can't just be walking down the street smoking a joint. You can't be. It's the same thing. Like here, we are in a coffee shop. Nobody can smoke. There's no smoking. And that's one of the arguments I hear on the other side is, oh, everybody's gonna be smoking it anywhere. I'm like, dude, people don't smoke tobacco anywhere anymore. It's you can't do it. It's not how it works. Yeah. And and where I think the the police certainly have a point is that I don't know that there's a reliable test for impairment and that's that they the police bring this up to me when they meet with me uh, because it stays in your system for long periods of time but that doesn't necessarily mean that you were impaired at the time you were behind the wheel and so that's an issue that I think we need to resolve but it's not sufficient enough to prevent us from from passing legislation uh, the other issue that I hear uh, from employers is to make sure that they still have the ability to regulate that within the workplace which I fully support and I think that will be part of the bill uh, to make sure that employees or employers do have the ability to um, um, you know, certainly prevent its use while at work, but also, you know, prevent some, again, impairment, in, especially in employment. Um, so those are two issues, but both of those, while they're valid arguments against it, I don't think they're insurmountable, and I don't think they should derail a bill. Um, I'm interested to see what the final product does look like, because uh, I think it can be uh, advantageous for Illinois to pass a regulatory scheme to make it happen. Well, yeah, and certainly there's no shortage of usage within the state of Illinois. And so I can totally see, you know, why not make money on that and regulate it and um, allow the state to benefit from that. And not, e and not even just the, the revenue side. Like you said, there's going to be cost savings to our correction system. Mm -hmm. And even w getting beyond the financial, it, it is a good start to reversing a trend where disproportionately these drug policies affected uh, minorities and, and really set them back uh, in a lot of ways when it comes to education, employment. And this is a, a first step to put them back on equal footing and, and actually try to give them a little bit of a leg up to make sure that you know, they can be successful as well. And that brings up a very controversial topic that I'm going to be curious to hear your answer about this. And I can see this. Um, a lot of people have been saying, and they have a very valid point in regard to this, is if marijuana is legalized, then we see a lot of large companies in big pharma all of a sudden moving in. Oh, now it's legitimized. So now we're going to see a lot of big business coming in and taking it over. 
as opposed to people who have you know been dealers for a long time and then all of a sudden you go from being oh you're a drug dealer run, 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 you're illegal to the very next day is oh it's legal and the people already have these dealers already have a infrastructure in place they're already presenting this product to an audience how do those people then kind of come out of the closet so to speak and say yeah I want to buy a license I want to buy a business license in terms of this and it necessitates their legitimization of something they've already been doing which previously has been illegal without being charged for something that was previously illegal so it's a weird kind of conundrum in terms of that I'm certainly not in favor of corporatizing it, and we want to do whatever we can to make sure that you know local business and small business are are part of that, uh, and and we want to avoid the kind of um, you know the commodification of it uh, in a way. I don't know that it's I don't know that it's wise to automatically go to folks that have been flaunting the law, regardless of whether the policy was right or not. Uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, distributing and, and or manufacturing or distributing drugs, while it's illegal, uh, I don't know that we should reward that by automatically, you know, allowing them to have the licenses. It's not an issue. This is the first time I'm really considering it. First person that's ever asked me about that specific issue. So I guess my thoughts aren't fully fleshed out on it, but I don't think it's right to to necessarily reward folks at that level. I can understand, you know, expunging some possession charges from years ago, low-level possession charges, uh, to make sure that you can then get a job someplace or get go back to school and get an education. But for the folks at the upper levels of that um, industry, I'm not so sure I'd go that far. Well, that's my next question is when it becomes legalized, which it seems like it's going to be, it's going to happen at some point. Um, what happened to the people? What happens to the people that are currently serving sentences for that? And just for that, I'm not talking about you know gun possession or violent crimes associated with dealing or anything like that. I'm talking about people who just got busted with pot yeah. or people who got busted dealing nonviolently. Yeah. You know, do you, do you release them immediately? Are their records expunged? How exactly is that going to work? Because if, if you want to have a just a just system. You should release them from prison, given the fact that you're, suddenly it's legal. And you know, it's kind of weird for me to you know say, oh, well, there's all these people, all these people who are in there for possession or something of a very minor amount. Why should they still be in prison when people are out freely doing the exact same thing that they were doing? Yeah, my understanding is that there is going to be a component of that to the bill. Again, I don't know exactly what level or where they're drawing those lines. I would say that the state of Illinois years ago decriminalized it to some extent, just you know, possession. And so I think there are fewer people that are in the system for that reason than there used to be. Uh, but I'll, I do trust the folks, the criminal justice reform folks that are working on the bill to draw those lines and see where... Uh, where they can provide some relief to people that, like you said, were, are, are incarcerated for low levels of, of uh, possession. Yeah. How much is Illinois looking to states like Colorado, California, Nevada, um, Oregon, Washington, places like that, that have already decriminalized it, that have already made it legal uh, for a uh, template to follow? And um, something like you know Colorado, where it's been extremely successful in terms of the revenue-producing side, uh, not to mention you know from all reports, um, crime rates have gone down as well in Colorado. So 
how do you follow something? You look at a successful um, template and follow it and translate that into the um, geographical uniqueness of Illinois and the, the things in which we may differ from a state like Colorado. Yeah, we're in a great position in Illinois um, because the sponsors of the bill and all the stakeholders have these other states and programs to look through and maybe take the best from each. But at the same time, we're poised to be first in the Midwest to really, you know, take advantage of that position here in the area, in the region. Um, I, I don't know for sure who is looking at what states or who's conferring. I know the bill sponsors are in touch with all the folks involved, uh, and I'm sure it's on the back of their minds, or actually more in the front of their minds, actually, when they're, when they're thinking about it. Let's talk about the next big hot-button topic, which is the $15 an hour minimum wage increase. When we talked about this online. We you know, had a chat on Facebook back and forth about it. And um, it's, it's weird to me. Again, this is one of those issues in which it seems as if the people, some of the people that would benefit from this seem to be the most vehemently opposed to it, which always seems odd to me that people are arguing against their own best interests. One of the, things, one of the arguments that you always hear is, well, you know, I'm an EMT or whatever, and I make $15 an hour. Why should somebody, you know, who's working at McDonald's make the same amount as me? No, that would be the minimum, minimum amount. So if you are a trained and skilled person who is, you know, at a higher level than somebody who's flipping burgers or whatever, you would potentially make $25 an hour, $30 an hour, something of that nature. You would reasonably be given more money. How do you handle that? How do you bring that across to people? And where are we at in terms of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour here in Illinois? I know there are a lot of nuances to this. Please address those, particularly in regard to the issues of, I know it's um, at this point you're talking about, and this is the way I've always said it should be, is, yeah, you should have a trainee, a trainee wage that people are allowed to pay, like 16 to 18-year-olds who are coming in at working at YDs or whatever. You know, Yeah, they shouldn't be making $15 an hour. You have a trainee wage. Then you have like an apprenticeship wage or something like that, and you kind of work your way up to where if somebody is an adult, then they are making that $15 an hour wage. And then also, how do you fight against exploitation of that by companies that will, oh, somebody hits 21 and they're going to make $15 an hour, they you know, mysteriously get let go in lieu of bringing in another 16-year-old. So one thing that you mentioned at the beginning uh, about you know, folks making 15 now, uh, the business community, or I should say the corporate community, since time immemorial, has been very good at pitting uh, workers against other workers. Yeah. And the, the fact that... Kind of like the demonization of unions. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And instead of asking, why is that person going to be making as much as me, you should ask, why is my employer not willing to pay me more than what I'm worth? And that's a question that everybody should be asking. We should not be uh, uh, not be divided among the workers. We should be confronting the folks, uh, 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 the owners. That certainly, uh, there's a, a cartoon out there and a political cartoon I think from years ago, and so you know, a big corporate baron uh, with there, there's a plate of ten cookies, and the baron's got ten cookies, uh, and he points at the you know the white working class person. 
uh, and says, hey, look, you know, that minority person over there is trying to take your cookie. Mm-hmm. So you guys, you know, the working class is fighting for the scraps while the uh, the barons get 90%. Well, yeah, that's one of the things that people don't seem to think about is the CEOs and so many people who are at the top of the chain are making an obscene an obscene amount of money. And you you read all the time about this company, this company made record profits, blah 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 blah. And then the next day you know, they're laying people off. Mm, how does that how does that, you know, jibe? You know, how does it jibe where like where these same companies where CEOs are making fifteen, twenty million dollars a year can dare to say, Well we can't you know, Walmart Starbucks, places like that. Well, we can't afford to, to pay this. You know, it's just, that's to me, is ludicrous. Yeah, my, and my biggest concern with that is that when these uh, big companies in particular that pay their workers either minimum wage or just above minimum wage, they're essentially making the state subsidize yeah. their employer, employer wages because uh-huh. these folks are then have to be on food stamps or housing assistance, uh, uh, you know, welfare, essentially. And it's, it's, it's not right, and we need to do something to address it. And so the minimum wage bill that's been proposed uh, is a part compromise with some of the business communities, such as the Restaurant Association. And what it would do is it would raise the minimum wage of 8.25 to 9.25 on January 1st of 2020, and then to $10 on July 1st of 2020, and then a dollar each January after that until 2025, so up to $15. And there's been a lot of talk and polls and media coverage that says we're going from $8.25 to $15. The important thing is to realize that it's not happening overnight. Um, Although some people would love to have it sooner. you know, I, I'm, I want to advocate for a reasonable ramp to get up there because I think although uh, corporations, big corporations can take that blow, I believe, some of our smaller businesses, especially here locally, they're gonna, they could be in a lot of trouble. And so we had to balance that. And so I definitely supported the six-year approach as opposed to, let's say, a three- or four-year approach. Uh, under that bill... There's also, like you said, a, a youth wage, which is for seasonal employees, any 16 or 17-year-old that is working less than 650 hours in a year gets the essentially the youth wage, which by the end of it is, I think, $2 lower than the 15, so $13. There's also, it also keeps the tipped employee wage, which is 60% of the, of the minimum wage, and then they're supposed to obviously you know, compensate that by tips. That's still in the bill. There was a push to get rid of it, but the compromise was we'll leave it in uh, going forward. And then lastly, there's a, a training wage or a probationary wage that for 90 days you can pay, again, I think it's $2 less, so that you can at least have some work experience with that employee to see if they're going to work out. Uh, and then once that 90 day hits, then you'll pay them the full wage. And you mentioned some of that uh, I guess possible abuse of the system. There isn't a really good way to prevent that. There is a provision, uh, so small businesses are eligible for a tax credit to help ease them into the increased wage. And if an employer is found to be abusing the, the hours side of things, that can affect their tax credit. Uh, but in general, uh, other than you know workers standing up for themselves and and not patronizing businesses that are uh, abusing their employees like that 
um, which is the way we should, you know, try to organize. Um, there isn't really a good way to, to get the cheaters, although I'm hopeful that um, the, on the, the, there won't be as much cheating as, you know, again, this, we shouldn't blame the few that do that uh, when it actually, most of businesses are going to try to comply with the law. Let's talk about the chamber and their statement where they come out against this $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, they obviously have a certain perspective given the fact that the Quad Cities Chamber covers both Illinois and Iowa. <laughs> Probably not going to happen anytime soon in Iowa where the minimum well, wage is going to get raised, or well, perhaps is there? Yeah, well, it's, it's, fun, it's funny you mention that um, because the state of Missouri is already at uh, $9 an hour. Actually, Missouri by referendum, uh, is going to have a higher minimum wage than Illinois. And it's set to go up um, uh, to $12.60, I think, over the next couple of years by, by 2023. So we're going to keep pace with Missouri. Um, and then Minnesota passed a minimum wage increase years ago. They're around $10, and they're indexed to inflation. So over the next six years, theirs is going to go up as well. And so Iowa's going to be in between Illinois, Minnesota, and Missouri, uh, all with higher minimum wages. And workers are going to start to ask themselves, well, hey, you know, if I can, I've been working hard here for $8.25 since Iowa's at $7.25 right now. Um, I might be able to do better. Uh, I'm a good worker. I might be able to do better in Missouri or, or Illinois or Minnesota. And so there's going to be pressure on Illinois companies, if not the legislature, to do right by their employees and pay them uh, a more livable wage. And so I... Uh, I you mean Iowa. Or sorry, Iowa. Yes, <laughs> Iowa. Um, I'm sorry, very Illinois-centric. Um, so by the time we get to 2025, uh, we, it may not be the big discrepancy that, that some folks are worried about. You anticipated what I was going to say. <laughs> that, was what I, that was where I was going with that, is I was going to ask you, I know that the Chamber is looking out for Illinois and Iowa, both sides, but how, is this, how does this impact when you look at the other bordering states to, to Illinois? How is this, you know, and I was just going to say the same thing as Missouri and um, uh, Wisconsin, both you know, have uh, different, a, higher, a higher minimum wage. Um, how do you think it's going to impact the Quad Cities if Iowa remains the same? Are you going to see um, a drain of workers? Because, again, if I'm a worker over on the Davenport side or working in Betnor for Davenport, doing the same thing like say we're right here in a coffee shop if i'm working in a coffee shop in in bettendorf or davenport and i'm making you know what seven twenty seven a quarter or whatever and i look over and my friend is making eleven dollars an hour over here on the illinois side heck i'm gonna want to go work over in illinois you know and that that is a boon to illinois although if you're a, an entity like the chamber that's looking out for both sides, how do you balance that out? Where you know you've got one side that that's very beneficial for, and the other side it's meh, not so much, but it's really out of their control. So that is a, a pressure for, of workers wanting to come where there's higher wages. But I do take the chamber and their members seriously when they talk about uh, there's also uh, pressure for the actual Illinois businesses when faced with that larger payroll to move across the river. And again, it really applies most to the smaller businesses that it's going to be most difficult for. And although I think it's the right thing to do and will help many people in the state of Illinois and here in the Quad Cities, some people are, uh, you know, necessarily any policy we do, some people are going to be left behind. And so we have to be, and I have to be conscious of that when, when I make some of these decisions. Um, and I had a very 
um, I, I think productive meeting with the chamber last week where a lot of these concerns were expressed and one thing I, uh, I certainly give credit to is there are a lot of folks out there that just automatically assume prices are going up, people are going to lose jobs, people are going to move across the state. Um, the folks the folks in that room, you know, they raise some of those issues, but they're very, very respectful and very concerned about, it comes from a place of being concerned about our local economy, and I, and I very much appreciate that. Again, going back to what we, you had previously addressed when I was going to ask you about, how much research has been done in terms of other states where this has occurred, where you've had metropolitan areas that have straddled the line of both states? Because this isn't, we are not an anomaly. I mean, we're unusual in the Quad Cities, but we're not an anomaly. There are a lot of states in which there are two cities that are on either side of a river or either side of a border. And... How has it been affected in the past in terms of other states where this has occurred, where there's been a significant minimum wage increase in one state and the other state has remained stagnant? Uh, the research, I think, is somewhat muddled at best. I think the research generally supports the idea that people that uh, were working for minimum wage before have X number of dollars uh, more <laughs> the next year after the minimum wage raises, and that somewhat is an intuitive, you know, common sense result. Um, but it's not necessarily so because if you believe that jobs go away, then on average, if people are losing their jobs, they're making zero compared to what they made before. So even with that uh, argument out there, minimum wages do wage, uh, raise wage levels and income for the folks that are near the bottom. It's a little less clear as to whether or not raising minimum wage actually has an effect, a significant effect on employment. There are some studies out there of, of Seattle that showed um, uh, a loss of employment. There are other studies that criticized their methodology and came up with um, a finding that there was not a significant impact either way on employment numbers. Um, so I don't know that there's been a uh, consensus among the economists as to what the actual result is, either in general or on cross-border situations. Um, what is the general consensus in terms of it helping to boost the middle class, giving people more disposable income, things of that nature, and how does that impact the economy in a positive way? That's pretty straightforward. It does help folks at the bottom. And if you look at the statistics, 41% of Illinoisans make less, make $15 or less right now. Uh, so you're talking about a, a, a large minority of the, of the population that stands to benefit from having the, the minimum wage increase. And these aren't your uh, typical high school workers anymore. Uh, the reality of our economy is that more and more people are in either minimum wage or just above minimum wage jobs as their full-time 40-hour-a-week job that they use to help feed their family. And they even might have another 20-hour-a-week job on top of that uh, to help fill the gap. And from, from my perspective, you know, that's the kind of person that we need to try to protect. And it, it ha almost has like a waterfall effect because you've got folks that are, would otherwise be retired. But because our economy and our retirement system and the way um, 
the way workers have been you know treated over the years they're not able to retire go ahead and say it mike workers have been screwed over over the last 40 years because they have workers have been screwed over so they, they don't have the ability to retire when they want to and when they can't retire then their job doesn't open up and you know i see a lot of folks saying well minimum wage is just for the the kid right out of high school while they're going to college and if you really work hard you can move up uh, the, again, the reality is you can't always move up because somebody hasn't retired to let the 30-year the guy hasn't retired to let the 25-year uh, woman move into his spot, which won't let the 20-year person, which won't let the guy that's entry-level move up. It's a, it's a chain reaction, and I think if people uh, start to look at those numbers, they'll see more why uh, an increase in the minimum wage is needed. Very true. Um, as I mentioned, like you look at the last 40 years, and as income inequality, the gap has widened, workers are getting screwed over more and more. And you see these super corporations like Walmart, in which the you know the top the people the CEOs the people who are in charge of the company are making an obscene amount of money and then the government ends up subsidizing most of their workers through government programs which tax the taxpayer so in essence we are helping the Walton family just become more grotesquely wealthy but you know that's not due to mental illness on their part or anything as we've as you've uh, as you've claimed but uh, anyway um, let's go to something else which i thought was very interesting maine has recently um um, passed um, law in which they're going to um, forgive student loan debt. And this is, again, this is something that I think really needs to be looked at seriously. And honestly, I think it, I think it should be done. I think that just today there was, there, there was a story about the military budget, which takes up about 60% of the federal budget. And um, they, they've lost some, they're like 10 trillion dollars that got quote unquote lost there was another story about um, them paying twelve hundred dollars each for coffee cups I mean it's just it's just obscene the amount of money that goes into the military budget and you have seen even like Gary Johnson who's a libertarian was saying well this is how we pay for these programs we cut the military budget it just makes sense that, that you cut the military budget and you're able to have universal health care and and student death debt forgiveness and I can already hear the people out there listening some of them and going you dirty socialist well this benefits you folks let's let's explain this if there's universal health care even if your taxes go up let's say your taxes go up five percent look at your paycheck about 20% of your paycheck is currently being taken out for a health care pro program from your employer. That 20% is no longer going to be taken out of your paycheck because you will have universal health care. So say you have 20% of your paycheck being taken out right now by your employer to cover you with an insurance in which you still have a pretty high deductible. All of a sudden you get that money back. Say your taxes go up 5%. The the money if the company gives the money back. Which they may not. Which they may not. But then you, then then you, well then if you have if you have if you have universal health care though if you have health care for all then you don't need your company doesn't need to provide that so a suddenly your company is not out that money which ostensibly they would use to pay higher salaries or other benefits <laughs> or hiring employees. The other thing is you're not paying that anymore. All of a sudden, 25% of your paycheck is no longer being taken out every week 
to pay for your health care and you have more disposable income. To me, this seems like, and not only not to mention that, but there was a recent study, and I believe it was by, by the Cato Foundation, if I'm not mistaken. It was the Cato Foundation, which is a, a right wing, a pretty strong, staunch right wing foundation that showed that the cost of universal health care was actually less than the current cost of health care right now. So how do you not make that decision from a financially conservative standpoint and say this is a much better decision to make? From a state level, what can you guys do to address any of those things, and what are your feelings on that subject, Mike? We'll go back to the student loan issue. We got, I know we got out of the student loan thing, and then we, like get out of universal universal health care. How do you how do you think that that like you know washes out, and how would that impact the state? We'll go to the student loan thing next. I know this is how, this is how the show goes, Mike. <laughs> I was going to say we we we've covered uh, student loan, the military industrial complex, and uh, universal health care on one question. Yeah. So we try to well, welcome to a discussion with me, Mike. So that, on. on Unpack it a little bit, and and part of it you mentioned the, the military. I'd have to use the phrase a little bit above my pay grade on those some of the federal issues. I would say for the state of Illinois that uh, money that the state pays for uh, let's say, like Medicaid uh, reimbursement rates. We talked a little bit about it from on the mental health side, but even on the physical health side, uh, healthcare is a, is a large expense for the state, not just for state employees, but again for those folks that benefit from state-supported services. So if the federal government were to, to resolve that issue, it would have a significant and favorable, I think, budget impact on the state of Illinois. Um, there have been proposals floated out to allow folks to buy into uh, Medicaid here in the state of Illinois uh, rather than have uh, more expensive um, uh, service through a private employer. I don't know that those are going anywhere yet. Uh, I don't think they've been costed out yet to figure out whether it's viable or not, but that is an idea that's being talked about. So there are some things we can do on the state level to try to improve the, the situation. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that anything's going to happen this spring on that issue. Let's okay. Let's go back to the student loan thing. So so Maine they um, Maine has uh, said that they're going to uh, forgive student loan debt. Um, part of the contingency of that is that you have to live in the state for a certain amount of time. And to me that makes sense. I mean, for again from a financial standpoint, when you look at the numbers, when you stop and take the when you look at di- look at it dispassionately, you look at the okay. Say I have forty five thousand dollars, and that's probably a a low amount for most most people coming out of college nowadays. Forty five thousand dollars in student loan debt if i'm required to live in the state of illinois for for 10 years or five years or whatever to have that forgiven and i move into the state the state starts paying that back for for me um how does that work out from a uh, remuneration standpoint for the state where having that extra resident here and having taxes taken out of their paycheck having taxes you know property taxes levied upon them and things of that nature how is that going to wash out? If I, I mean, me I personally, I'm paying probably between forty-five hundred and five thousand dollars a year in taxes. Um, if I have forty, you know, forty-five thousand um, dollars in in debt, and I'm and I'm required to live here for ten years, and during that time I buy a house in which I get charged forty-five hundred dollars a year, then that would be almost a wash. I mean, you're talking about forty-five hundred dollars in taxes being levied upon me, and across that ten years, I'm also being forgiven basically 
exactly the same amount of money in student loan debt. So at the very least, you're getting a wash on that. But then on top of that, here I am living in the state, and so I'm paying sales tax every time I go and buy something. I'm paying other. I'm paying personal income tax and things of that nature. So that would seem to be a plus for the state in making an investment in people. Not to mention the fact that this is. It always pisses me off when I see memes against millennials and oh millennials they're so lazy and blah 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 no they're not fucking lazy they've got a crap ton of student loan debt and they can't afford anything and that's going to be such a handicap to the economy that people in their 20s and 30s and even beyond cannot afford to buy a house they cannot afford to buy a car those are big ticket items that bring in a lot of tax revenue to the state so if they can't afford that, that is d- indirectly impacting the state in a negative fashion. Do you think that that is a reasonable plan to draw people in? And again, then you have a higher educated populace. You have all determiners that would say that people who have a college degree make more money and therefore the state would be able to take more in income tax bring in more in income tax, you'd have a higher educated populace, you'd have a populace that is, you know, you're bringing in more desirable workers, things of that nature. It seemed, it would seem to me to be an investment that would pay off in the long run. Yeah, yeah and actually, so your scenario uh, is one step uh, shorter because it assumes that someone is living here in Illinois with student debt. Um, I can do you one better by saying what we know is that 75%, I think, of students that go to a, a certain state for college remain in that state uh, to live. And what we've seen over the past four years is significant drops in enrollment in our public in- universities uh, and some of our private institutions because the, the state of Illinois has not been a reliable source of funding for higher education, whether it's uh, MAP grants or just operations for our you know, Western Illinois University, for example. And so uh, a program like this that would provide you grants to go to an Illinois school and have you stay in Illinois for a certain amount of time is a way to reverse that trend. Uh, You spend a little bit of money on the front end, but over a lifetime of that person living here in the state of Illinois after graduation, uh, and maybe their kids, you know, as they as they get married and have families, um, that return on investment over the next 50 to 75 years is going to be huge. And it's something that we've, again, we've lost over the last four years. We're going in the wrong direction on that front. There was a bill, uh, I was on the Higher Education Committee last year, so there was a bill sponsored that would offer grants uh, if you attended a public university in the state of Illinois, uh, provided that you, you know, earn certain benchmarks of grades and, you know, quality, quality student maintained your uh, full-time status and, and then lived, in the, lived and worked in the state of Illinois uh, following your, your graduation. And I think it's a very good incentive program to get people to stay here and, rever- again, reverse that trend, get people invested in the state of Illinois. Yeah, and one of the things I always find ironic is that people will listen to stuff like this and go, oh, my God, that's such a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's the same idea as giving businesses tax incentives to, to open businesses and to stay in the state. The only thing is is that there's a difference between whenever – it seems like whenever there's a program that benefits big business and people with money who already have money, people don't bat an eyelash at it. But whenever there's a program that benefits the middle class or the working class – 
suddenly everybody's purse strings, you know, become tightened and it's it's some horrible pie in the sky thing. Whereas if you look at the numbers, especially for something like this, this is an investment in the middle class. This is an investment in growing the middle class, which is what drives the economy, which we've seen from past history is the the main, the main driver of the economy. It's it's a rising tide. And when you and when you invest in individuals on this level, they're much more likely to return that investment here in the state. Um, we've seen over the past several years that companies that receive taxpayer-funded incentives from the state of Illinois or from local governments, uh, there's a company in the suburbs that got $60 million from the state over the last 10 years. They're now relocating uh, someplace else, and they get to take that money with them. Um, and over that period of time, that $60 million could have gone to additional higher education, infrastructure, uh, K-12 education, any number of things. Uh, and investment in organizations and people that were actually going to stay here and not just look for a better deal as soon as they got, you know, the taxpayer incentives from the state of Illinois. It's, um, it's a much more worthwhile investment, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I've actually, I, I've actually sponsored a bill to require companies to give that money back if they decide to make that relocation um, out of the state. So Make that happen, Mike. Make that happen. That is, I agree with you 100% on that. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> what are some of the other bills that you've got? I'm going to wrap up here because I know you've got oh. places to be and stuff, too. Um, what, are some, what are some of the things you want to talk about that you want to add? What are some of the bills that you've got in the pipeline or that you're um, working on that you're going to be um, trying to advance? Yeah, so one is uh, I try to do... Uh, I take my lead from constituents. Uh, last year, that Robert Young bill was one that you know the the, the facility came to me and asked me about. I've got one this year from uh, uh, a local school. It allows students with diabetes to have an un, un, what's called a undesignated glucagon, so basically the opposite of insulin. When you have low blood sugar, it's a rescue medication. And it allows schools to stock that for anyone that might have uh, an emergency while they're at school. So right now, as a student, you're allowed to have one designated in your name or prescribed under your name. Uh, but this would allow schools, if someone comes in that doesn't have one uh, but suffers a, you know, an attack or a low blood sugar, that they're able to have that on hand for anyone that might come in without using anybody else's medication. Uh, so I try to do those local bills uh, whenever I can. I'm also obviously uh, uh, supporting some of the other initiatives like the, the minimum wage bill, um, a couple other little things uh, here and there. Um, uh, uh, helping out with the controller's office with their administrative bill. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to work on uh, all those issues at once. Yeah. What are some of your goals for the next year or two? Uh, one of my biggest goals is to make sure that we maintain our consistency of passing budgets during the four years under Governor Rauner, the uncertainty that's created when we can't get our act together and just do our basic job of passing a budget is uh, is worse than almost anything else the state <laughs> could do. Uh, you talk to some business owners and they, they say, look, I can, I can make this work as long as I know what the rules are, but if there's no budget, I don't know what the tax rate is, I don't know what the minimum wage is I don't know what the regulations are it's tough for me to make decisions with one year three year five year implications so we need to continue to have uh, budgets passed balanced budgets so we can at least give them the ability to plan ahead 
Yeah. So that's the. I think that's my biggest goal. What are some of your goal, goals that directly impact us here in the Quad Cities or that are very Quad City centric? Uh, the biggest one for me here is is passenger rail. Uh, we're working on uh, rededicating the funding and making sure that we work with the railroad to get the improvements to the track that are necessary for it. Uh, I've been working with Department of Transportation, been in contact with them to make sure that you know we're having meetings, we're trying to get this uh, get this accomplished. I think it'll be a huge uh, economic booster to the Quad Cities. And then I also want to make sure that we continue to improve and fund Western Illinois University. So those are probably my two biggest uh, local issues. Sounds good. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap things up? I don't think so. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here and talk to you, and happy to do it again sometime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike Halpin, State Representative from District 72. Thank you so much for being a guest on Quad Cities Uncut, the only uncut, unedited, uncensored podcast in the Quad Cities where we talk to local newsmakers about interesting things and topics of note. And once again, my name is Sean Leary. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you found this uh, educational, interesting, entertaining and well worth your time thanks a lot for tuning in again mike thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me and have a great day